Listen, church, the cross has paid it all. We come to the table this morning and we're reminded to tell us that it is finished. It's been paid in full. There's not a single thing you can do today to add to the finished work of Christ. Nothing. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pilgrim Benham. I'm the lead pastor of Shoreline Church. And today on the podcast, we will be studying all four of the gospel accounts of the death, the crucifixion, the execution of Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you to open your Bible to John chapter 19. Very powerful, very impacting study of the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. God bless you guys. This morning, we're continuing our series, Road to the Cross. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a little bit unorthodox. We've been studying all through them and then looking at how John and his gospel stands a little bit in distinction from them. And so uh, today we're going to be reading the accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And, And this is with a great mix of sobriety and awe and heaviness that we turn our attention to the centerpiece of Christianity, the death of Jesus Christ upon a Roman cross. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians, but you could say perfected by uh, the Romans. It was a means of torture and execution. It was reserved in Rome just for the criminals who were guilty of murder, rebellion, or armed robbery. Uh, It was described uh, by Cicero as a most cruel and disgusting punishment. In fact, Cicero would go on on the screen to say this, to blind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. And then later he said the very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. Yet it was standard for Rome, the empire of Rome, to crucify criminals right outside of the city gates, kind of as a reminder that we are in charge and that we are keeping that Pax Romana that we studied last week, that we're keeping the peace, but we're keeping it at the end of a sword. And so the cross in the mind of everyone in the first century was the the terrible, awful means of death if you were to cross the, the, uh, the Roman Empire, if you were to go against them. It was an instrument of torture, execution, death, blood, and condemnation. Very different than today. And I'm not judging if you've got a cross necklace or cross earrings or an edgy cross tattoo on your forearm. I'm not, I'm not judging you in that. I'm just saying it's changed from the original first century idea of it. Uh, it would be like going to the mall later after service and you stop into UTC and you go into one of the stores, and he's like, hey, I'd like to buy, um, Zales um, has a sale right now, and I'd, I'd like to buy a, um, uh, a, a gas chamber necklace. Do you guys sell a gas chamber necklace? Is there an electric chair set of earrings, right? That would just seem a little bit odd uh, for us to do that. Uh, and yet that was ultimately what it was like in the first century. C.S. Lewis said that the cross wasn't used in art or sculpture or painting until anyone who actually had seen a crucifixion died off. Uh, So Constantine actually barred it as a means of execution in its day. And yet, it was the cross, it was crucifixion 
that was the means by which Jesus purchased our salvation and bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus was not stoned to death. Jesus was not impaled. Jesus was not brought up in front of a firing squad. He was nailed to a cross, and he became the substitute, and he took our sin upon himself. And in his death at Calvary, he removed our sins from us. So uh, I don't want you to have the wrong impression that Uh, what we're going to read today is merely a few minutes of minor pain and discomfort. Uh, The word, in fact, excruciating, actually comes from a crucifixion. You can see the root word crux in there. We invented the word excruciating, and just think of the time or times that you've been in excruciating pain. Some of you still live in chronic pain, but excruciating pain, you remember that pain scale on a 10, and that was the word that was invented from a crucifixion. And so we're going to be looking at what Jesus endured for us today as we study this. Now, uh, let's start in Matthew 27. We're going to start in verse 32, and I'm just going to read. And then we're going to go to Mark, and we're going to read. And then we're going to go to Luke and read, and then we will begin our study in John's gospel. So, Matthew 27, starting in verse 32. Heading should say something like the crucifixion. It says, As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemat sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, let's turn to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 15. 
And we're going to start in verse 21. So turn to the right, to the book of Mark 15, verse 21. It says, And they, it's the Romans, compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemet sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. All right, let's turn to Luke's gospel, chapter 23. Luke 23, and we're going to be looking around verse 26, Luke 23, 26. Luke 23, 26 says, And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Verse 32 says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged 
rallied or railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 44 says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Now we turn to John's Gospel, chapter 19. So turn with me to John 19. And we're going to look through uh, about eight specific events that John emphasizes in his gospel. We'll flash them up on the screen quickly. We're going to look at the actual crucifixion, the inscription, the gambling that took place, the mourning of the women, the thirsting of Jesus, the actual death, the confirmation of his death, and the testimony. Uh, so we're going to move quickly, but that is the outline. That's where we're going. So let's start in verse 16, look at the crucifixion. Uh, John 19, 16 says, So they took Jesus... And, they, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Now, I just want to point out there's not a contradiction here. Jesus set out carrying his cross. This would have been the, the, uh, probably the initial wood beam on his shoulders, not the, the forward cross beam. He set out with that, and yet the other gospel writers say that Eventually, uh, he buckled under that weight and that Simon of Cyrene was compelled by the Romans to carry it. Now, there's a little debate exactly where this place Golgotha is or place of the skull. Uh, I'm actually not interested in that debate, but I am interested in what Scripture details. Okay, so we do know that it was near the city because in a minute we're going to read verse 20 of John 19 that says that it was um, near where people were walking by. Um, we know it had to be outside the city gates because Hebrews 13, 12 says that Jesus suffered outside the city gate. So we have to look at how Scripture determines and interprets Scripture. Um, we know it was probably by a road or pathway because Matthew tells us that people were walking by and insulting him. So it probably took place. Um, now, though that's true biblically, some ideas made their way into the mix. And these are not in the Bible, but they are interesting. Okay, so I just want to give you that disclaimer. They're interesting. I think since we're studying this, you should at least know that these ideas exist in Christendom or in church um, you know, ideas. So it was believed, first of all, by many that the um, uh, early Christians felt that Golgotha was right next to or on top of an ancient Jewish graveyard. They believed that Golgotha was taken by the Romans. It was a Jewish graveyard, almost had insult to injury. We're going we're gonna to do crucifixions right here on a path going into the city. And so the Romans just kind of set up shop here. Uh, and that's possible. We're not sure, but that was an early 
kind of idea. Um, the third century theologian named Origen, he spread this notion that Adam's skull was actually in this location. It was buried and kept there. That's, that's very insightful or interesting, fascinating if it's true, that the one man through whom sin entered the world would be connected to the, the second Adam, right? The one man who took our sin and took our place. So uh, we're not sure if that's why it's called the place of the skull, but it's fascinating. Uh, another story goes that when Solomon was quarrying the side of Mount Moriah for the temple stones, as he was digging out the side of the hill, uh, there were some impressions left in this one particular area, which actually in the certain time of day, I don't know, do we have a picture of it, Chris? Um, it actually leaves what looks like a skull when the sun's hitting it just right at a certain time of day, and perhaps that's the exact spot. And that's definitely very plausible, and that place still exists today if you were to go to Israel. So in Latin, the phrase Golgotha is Calvary. It's Calvary. Jesus uh, was taken to this place, and verse 18 says just merely, they crucified him. Why no description? Why does it just say that simple phrase, they crucified him? Well, the reason is the early church knew what a crucifixion was. They didn't need to be told. They didn't need to be explained. They understood that. They understood uh, why there was no reason to be descriptive. And the gospel writers, I think, were not trying to play into people's emotions. They're just describing, they're just giving the facts, reporting the story. They're not trying to pull on heartstrings. Uh, we'll be diving into this more on Good Friday. Not, not pulling your heartstrings, but, but we'll, be, we'll be talking about the crucifixion more in detail. Uh, so be prepared for that, okay? Uh, we'll be talking about the scourging and the crucifixion. Now, Jesus, just for today, Jesus' hands would have been nailed to the cross beam, all right? His feet would have been placed one on top of the other, uh, and a nine-inch spike, okay, I want you to think of a railroad spike, would be driven into the top foot down into the bottom foot. Would have been driven, many people argue it was the, it was the hand or the, um, the forearm. I really don't think it matters, either one. Uh, I don't think we lose anything. You can come up later and say, I think it, that's fine. We can argue about it. Either way, we know that, that this is what happened. Uh, and ultimately, uh, Jesus was crucified to this cross. Um, we also learn from the, the Gospels that there were uh, two thieves. There was one on either side crucified with Jesus. And one of them, both of them early on, it seemed like we're both reviling. But then one of them seemed to have this change. One of them repents and he trusts Christ to his own salvation, the other continued to revile Jesus to his own destruction. And I like what one person said on the screen. They said that the whole of humanity was represented there. We have the sinless savior, we have the saved penitent, and we have the condemned impenitent. Interesting. So Jesus was crucified. Let's look at our second idea, the inscription. Look at verse 19. It says in verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. I just love that he was still in his death identified with little. The place where Jesus was crucified oh, was near the city. There it is. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. The Roman custom uh, was that the person being crucified had to have his crime written out. And that charge was actually hung around his neck as he carried his cross. And then the title, when we got to the place of the crucifixion, would be, would be um, kind of nailed, a nail would be placed above his head, and they would hang that um, sign. 
so all could see why he or she was being executed. Uh, They would commonly use a board uh, that was whitened with gypsum uh, for this inscription. Now notice that Pilate, in verse 20, uh, writes this in three languages, okay? The inscription was written in Aramaic. Why? For the Jews uh, to know that they were crucifying their king. It was written in Latin. Uh, Latin was the language of Rome. So as an empire, I think it's interesting, they're crucifying the very one who would conquer them centuries later. Uh, It was also written in Greek, the language of the common man, right, to know that Jesus is a king for everyone. Another person said it this way, I like this. They said in Hebrew or Aramaic, it was written for the Jews who gloried in the law. It was written in Greek for the Grecians who gloried in wisdom. And it was written in Latin for the Romans who most gloried in dominion and power. But I think it's interesting that Pilate writes what he writes. He writes, the king of the Jews, and the chief priests get upset. And they're like, no, 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 no. You just say he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He's not actually our king. Uh, but isn't it providential, guys, how it played out? Isn't that amazingly providential? On each side of Jesus hangs a man, and in three languages, we can surmise that it says thief. There's a thief on each side, and yet there's no crime on Jesus' inscription. There's no crime. It's, it's actually true. He is the king of the Jews. There's no crime associated with this inscription. It's just the truth. And Jesus is ultimately the king of the Jews, and he's king of every heart. Go back and read Psalm 2. Uh, we're to kiss the son. He has all dominion and all rule and all authority. He's the king. Now let's look at our third point. We're moving quickly. Look at verse 23 at the gambling. It says that when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, so now he's in that place. Uh, he's probably elevated about four feet above the ground. Uh, Some people think that people were crucified eye level. The Persians didn't want the ground to be cursed, so they would elevate the person. So we're not sure if he exactly was elevated, but possibly. So he's in that place. The soldiers take his garments, verse 23. They divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now, just follow me. There would have been several men supervising these three crucifixions in order to make sure that they indeed happened and the execution was successful, but also to ward off any Um, any intrusion, right? Because there's a crowd of people and they could have interfered. And so these Roman soldiers are kind of keeping law and order, so to speak. And so the person who's being crucified in that moment, when they're brought to their scourging, they're sentenced, then they carry their cross and then they're crucified, they would lose anything on their person. Any personal possessions with them would be taken. It'd be like going to jail, you're gonna lose your wallet, everything, all your personal effects are taken. And so these four soldiers, we can assume there's four, they take what Jesus is wearing and they divide it up into four parts. Uh, To these men, this is just a typical Friday morning. This is just a normal clock in, do some crucifixions, clock out. These men were expert executioners. They were skilled at beating and tormenting and putting to death anyone that they were assigned. This is just their job. This is a normal Friday, nothing out of the ordinary at least on the front end. Now you'll know with me from verse 23 that they divide them into four parts. Now many people believe that these four pieces of apparel would include Jesus' shoes, his headgear, his outer garment, uh, and a belt. And we're not sure if that's exactly what happened. 
but it's not difficult to divide those four up. Like, I get the shoes, you get the belt, uh, he gets the cloak, and you can have the head clothing. So ordinarily, I was reading this week, fascinating, ordinarily, men were crucified naked. Uh, there was kind of a, a phrase in the first century. They would say, you're naked as a, as a baby or as the crucified. So that was kind of what they normally did. But Jewish sensitivities called for men who were being stoned to at least be permitted to wear a loincloth when they were being executed. So we're not sure if the Romans were being considerate of the Jews. Remember we learned last week how Pilate was on thin ice with the Jewish religious leaders. So maybe their, maybe their Roman crucifixions there were, were, had a little more dignity with clothing. We're not sure. Uh, but we do know the last bit of possessions that Jesus had Uh, They were taken from him. But notice that John points out, no one else did, that Jesus had a tunic. The tunic was known as not the loincloth, but the undergarment. And it was worth more than anything else that Jesus owned. You could say that the tunic was Jesus' most valuable earthly possession. Uh, Many people believe it was made out of linen or uh, wool, and it was woven in one piece from top to bottom, as John points out. Now, according to history, and uh, you can jot this verse down, Exodus 39.22, Exodus 39.22. According to this, the high priest wore something very similar to the tunic that Jesus was wearing. Another verse for you, Leviticus 21.10, says that the high priest could never have his clothes torn. I think that's interesting. This reminds us that Jesus fits the role of the Old Testament priest. He is our go-between. He is the one mediator between God and man, the intercessor with the Father. Uh, and so verse 24 kind of captures this idea that the tunic was not torn, but John also points out that it fulfills a very specific prophecy found in Psalm 22:18. So I want you to jot that verse down, Psalm 22:18. If you're having your, your quiet time devotion time in the next few weeks, I want to encourage you at some point before Good Friday or on Good Friday to land in Psalm 22. Can you guys do that? You guys are saying, yes, you're going to forget. Psalm 22, I really want to encourage you to read through that psalm. Okay? From that psalm, it begins with David saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? This psalm was written by King David literally hundreds of years before the Persians dreamed up the idea of a crucifixion. And yet when you read Psalm 22, you go, wait a minute, this is the crucifixion. This was written before it was even dreamed up. It was even thought of or adopted by the Romans. And yet when we read Psalm 22, we see a very accurate picture of someone being crucified. And so John quotes Psalm 22, and he says, Scripture was fulfilled. That Scripture was fulfilled here at the cross. Just think of this, church. As Jesus is dying, he looks down, and he sees men gambling for the most important earthly possession that he held. Pastor Brian Bill says this, they were so busy looking down at the ground, thinking of material things that they never looked up to see the Savior of the world. They divided up used clothes while ignoring the eternal riches that Jesus was offering them. They heard the first two shouts from the Savior offering forgiveness and salvation, but they were too locked into their loot to pay attention, any attention to him. Is it possible that you're focused more on material things than on eternal realities? Don't gamble your life away on things that won't last. Wow. Well, Jesus wore nothing on the cross but perhaps his loincloth, but also remember the spike nerd, the anointing oil that had been anointed on him just a few days prior. 
All of his earthly possessions were taken from him. Just consider that. Consider the lengths that Jesus went to purchase our salvation. Now, according to legend, we don't know if this is true, it was his mother Mary that gave this tunic to Jesus. This was something that most mothers would normally give their sons when they would grow up and leave home. And that brings us to our next idea, the morning. Look at verse 25. It says, but standing there by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, I just want you for a minute uh, to see who's here, okay? We just read it quickly, but we've got four women here. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus. We have Mary's sister, so that's Jesus' aunt. We have Mary, the wife of Cleopas, or Clopas, and we have Mary Magdalene. All of these Marys hanging out together, right? Uh, And so when we read this, um, we also see John, but I can't help but ask the obvious question, like, where are the other 11? Where, where, are the, where are the other disciples? Why are they not here? Where's Joseph? Why is Joseph, the father of Jesus, not here? Many historians believe that Joseph actually had died at this point. And so this moment was Jesus almost leaving a last will and testament by saying, okay, I, at this point, have no other way to take care of my earthly mother. And so from the cross, he says, woman, behold your son. Notice that Jesus did not say, mother, behold your son. He said, woman. He's remi- that would have crushed her to hear, mother, mom, behold your No, he says, woman. Uh, he's reminding her uh, of where uh, his place is uh, as the son of God. He says, woman, behold your son. In other words, turn to John here. John's going to care for you. And then he says to John, John, you have a responsibility. Behold, ide, pay attention. Look upon uh, this woman as your mother. And church history says that Uh, Ultimately, John uh, took uh, Mary into his care, into his home, uh, and eventually um, came to Ephesus uh, with John, and he cared for her for the rest of his life. Uh, Now, on the screen real quick, I thought this was interesting. It says, in that culture, instructions given by a dying man were like writing them on a piece of paper. It's as if Jesus was preparing his will and executing it right on the spot. This oral testament made in front of witnesses was now binding. He knew he couldn't take care of her any longer, and so he entrusts her to John. In those days, there was no social security or pension plans. She was a widow, and since Jesus is the oldest son, he was responsible to take care of his mother in her old age. Jesus is fulfilling the most basic and sacred obligation that any son ever had by living out the fifth commandment found in Exodus 20.12, honor your father and mother. And even while performing redemption, Jesus was faithful to his responsibilities as a son. I think that's awesome. May we follow suit, those of us who are adult sons and daughters. May we care for our aging and ailing moms and dads and care for them. Well, let's look at our next idea, uh, the thirsting, verse 28. says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Verse 29 says, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. So Mark's gospel, if you remember, tells us the soldiers initially offer 
Jesus myrrh and wine, but Jesus refuses it. Why? Well, that's because it was often used to numb the pain. You would mix the myrrh and wine, and it would kind of take away the, it would dull the pain. Well, Jesus is not going to escape the full experience of suffering and offering himself as the propitiation. But see, this next time, someone gives him sour wine or vinegar on a sponge to drink. This would quench the thirst, but wouldn't dull the pain. Uh, but notice that John says this was to fulfill the scripture. Well, which scripture? Uh, actually, two different verses. And, and the two references together, the gall and the sour wine, fulfilled the messianic psalm, Psalm 69, 21. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says, they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So that's a fulfillment of Psalm 69, which is a messianic psalm. Not only that, but it's going back to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 15 Again, David's suffering describes his thirst. On the screen, he says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. This idea of my tongue uh, being dried up and being incredibly thirsty. Verse 29 here says they used a stalk of hyssop to lift the sponge to Jesus' lips. Do you guys remember that it was hyssop that Israel used at the Passover to apply the blood on the doorposts of the homes. Just think about that, think of that action. We're gonna go down the side of the doorpost and across the top. Let me do that again. Down the side and across the top. Isn't that interesting? And that's what's happening here. They're taking this hyssop and they're reaching up uh, to offer it to Jesus. An incredible fulfillment of these scriptures. Now, let's look at the death of Christ, verse 30. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus knew that all was now finished. It was all accomplished. The full wrath and judgment of God against sin was incurred upon Jesus. As we prayed earlier, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He paid the price that we could not pay, the debt that we could not pay, that we owed, he in full paid it. It was accomplished. And notice what Jesus cries out. He cries out, it is finished. But the word is in the Greek tetelestai. It comes from the verb teleo, which means to finish. Uh, but it was used in the first and second centuries in the sense of fulfilling or paying a debt, and often on a receipt, you would see a telio or tetelestai. It's been paid, the debt has been paid. Jesus on the cross was saying in his final declaration, paid in full. The law has been fulfilled. The debt that was owed, the condemnation that was exacted has been placed upon him, and now it is finished. And so may we understand what Christ has done. Morris says this, Jesus died with the cry of the victor on his lips. Uh, this is not the moan of the defeated nor the sigh of the patient, uh, of patient resignation. It is the triumphant recognition that he has now fully accomplished the work that he came to do. Saint, let me just, let me just encourage you. If you forget that it is finished, then what do we do? We go to add to the finished work of Christ, don't we? We learned about that last week. We, we say, hey, it wasn't enough, it wasn't finished, let me add to that sanctifying work, let me add to that justifying work, let me help make myself glorified one day 
by doing a little bit of side work for the Lord. No, he's paid it in full. Jesus Christ out to tell us die, and then he commits his spirit to the Father. He gives up his spirit, according to verse 30. Isn't that interesting? No one took his life. Jesus was not murdered. He was not martyred. No one took his life from him. He told us earlier in John, no one takes my life from me. I lay down my life. In this moment, Jesus gives up his spirit because the work had been accomplished. He laid it down for you and for me. And so look at the confirmation, verse 31. It says, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. You guys smell the irony here again? The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him, one who was impenitent, one who repented and trusted Christ. Both of their legs were broken. They would have immediately died. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, we're going to get a little more descriptive on Good Friday, but for today, according to Dr. William Edwards, in the, this is the Journal of the American Medical Association, um, death by crucifixion could come from a, a variety of sources. It could come from acute um, shock from blood loss. Remember, he had been scourged before carrying his cross, so that's, many people were killed in the scourging. So that's, that's a possible way to die. Or being too exhausted to breathe any longer, you just, your brain just gives up the will uh, to keep pushing your diaphragm and taking breaths. Uh, you could die from dehydration, which would have taken longer. You could die from a stress-induced heart attack, or you could have congestive heart failure, uh, which would lead to a cardiac rupture. This is according to the American Medical Association. Now, on the cross, when you were nailed to it, you would have been stuck in kind of an, an inhale or uh, an inhale position. And so to get a good, or exhale position. So to get a good breath, you would have to push yourself up, pulling against the nails driven into your hands, driven into your feet. Uh, and you would have to Flex your elbows, pulling from your shoulders, and putting the weight of your body against your nail-pierced feet and hands would produce more searing pain. Just think of that. Uh, and not only that, but you'd be scraping your back, which has been wrenched by the scourging and, and kind of brought open to the elements. You'd be scraping it against that wooden beam. Eventually, you would run out of the energy to push yourself up and breathe. So any words that Jesus says from the cross is from uh, absolute purpose and intention and pain. He, he utters seven different things from the cross, and each time he does that, he's, he's in incredible shocking pain as he does that. So if the victim wouldn't die quick enough, the Romans would just break their legs, and then they would have the inability to push themselves up, up and breathe, and they would die by asphyxiation. They would suffocate. Well, when the soldier comes to Jesus, he finds he's already died. So rather than breaking his legs, he pierces Jesus' side with a spear. And it says, according to John, that blood and water flowed out. Now, some have called this an on-the-spot autopsy. Why? Well, because when blood and water flow out from a body, it's confirmation at this crucifixion that the, the water sac surrounding the heart, the pericardium, had ruptured. Uh, you could say that Jesus died of a ruptured heart. Uh, just prior to this moment. And I think that it's significant, just as an, an aside, that almost whenever you have the, this idea in the Old Testament of purification from sin, 
in the sacrificial system, there's almost always blood and water to purify sin, blood and water. And so this expert executioner drives the spear into the side of Jesus, blood and water flows, and it's confirmed he's absolutely dead. There's no need to break his legs. Now, John shares with us that this was his own eyewitness account in our final idea, verse 35. It says, he who saw it, that's John, uh, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth. Why? That you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. You guys catch this? The purpose, according to John, is that we, the listener, the reader, might believe. And there's two scriptures that were additionally fulfilled. First, uh, either Psalm 34:20 or Numbers 9:12 are fulfilled by the fact that none of Jesus' bones were broken. Uh, I think we'll put Psalm 34:20 on the screen. Our screens are having fun today. They're just active today. It says that I'll just read it to you. He keeps all his bones; not one of them is broken. That's a fulfillment of Psalm 34:20. Uh, Numbers 9.12 says when you eat that Passover meal in haste, don't break the legs of, uh, or the bones rather, of the lamb sacrifice. So it could be a fulfillment of either one of those. But he says there's another scripture in verse 37 that's fulfilled. And that is Zechariah 12.10. Let me read to you Zechariah 12.10. This is fascinating. It's, it's God speaking through Zechariah. says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that, look at this, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. What a picture of the people of Israel who will realize that they looked on the one they pierced, their king, the king of the Jews, who came and who bore their sin, our sin in his body. Now we're gonna close in just a moment and we're gonna partake in communion together. Uh, and so I'm gonna invite the worship team forward to uh, close this time in the scriptures with a song. Um, so go ahead and close your Bibles, get settled. I'm gonna pray for us and um, we'll distribute the elements during this song. So our ushers are gonna prepare those. Just for a minute, consider the length that the Father went to to offer his one and only Son for us. We read this section of Scripture, this, this entire account. It should cause us to kind of look at that and go, what? I don't understand. Why? Why would he do that for me? Why would he seek after someone like me. And maybe you identify with that thief on the cross who there in his own dying moment reflects back and, and, and turns his attention to the center and, and says, Jesus, remember me. Maybe there's that moment where you realize I'm, I'm fully unworthy and I don't understand why he would do this for me. As we consider the love of God expressed in the finished work of Christ, Listen, church, the cross has paid it all. We come to the table this morning and we're reminded to tell us that it is finished. 
It's been paid in full. There's not a single thing you can do today to add to the finished work of Christ. Nothing. Donald Gray Barnhouse tells about visiting a 16th century Augustinian monastery in a palace near Madrid, Spain. It's a magnificent building where kings of Spain have been buried for centuries. And the architect in this place built an arch. Well, the arch was so flat in its pitch that apparently the king was concerned about it, that it would hold up. And so the king ordered the architect to add a column underneath the center of the arch just to kind of hold it up, or the arch, to hold it up. The architect argued this is not necessary, but the king insisted. And so he built the column to appease the king. Well, years later, the king died. And then the architect said, take the column down. And they said, well, the king ordered it to be built. It's holding up the arch. And he said, no, 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 investigate. And so the men built scaffolding, they climbed up, and they realized that the column that was built to hold up the weight of the arch, it came within a quarter of an inch short. In other words, it was a facade. It wasn't actually supporting it. And yet in those years, that arch had not sagged even in the slightest. And Barnhouse goes on to say that um, the guides will pass a little uh, laugh between the arch and the column to show that in even now 400 years since it was built, the arch has not moved. That arch is like our salvation. There's a master designer, there's a planner behind it. And it didn't just happen, it was carefully planned out and carried out by God. And yet, the cross, we're told in Acts 2.23, it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And like the arch, our salvation is totally sufficient in and of itself. Just as the arch didn't need the help of the column to stand, so our salvation as provided in Christ is perfect and sufficient without our human works to come alongside and supplement it. Jesus is in the center of two thieves, but he was also in between the wrath of God and sinful man. And today we can rest in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf at Calvary and proclaim with confident assurance, it is finished. I'm just gonna close with a Spurgeon quote, and uh, I think it's interesting, we sang a song earlier that's written on Spurgeon's tombstone he says, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. That was on Spurgeon's tomb. He says, there is nothing for God to do. It is finished. There's nothing for you to do. It's finished. Christ need not bleed anymore. It's finished. You need not weep. It's finished. God the Holy Spirit need not delay because of your unworthiness, nor need you delay because of your helplessness. It is finished. Every stumbling block is rolled out of the road. Every gate is opened. The bars of brass are broken. The gates of iron are burst asunder. It is finished. Come and welcome. Come and welcome. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.